Hello everyone, my name is Charlie and I'm about to give just one more opinion on Wonder Woman 1984, which was released in select theaters and on HBO Max just a couple of days ago. I had a chance to watch it, so now I'm gonna talk about it and beware of spoilers. Okay guys, Wonder Woman 1984 is the very first movie review that I'm doing that is completely unrelated to my previous episodes, which were all about the MCU. And it's a review on a recent movie, a new release, something that was rare this year. I've been following the DC Extended Universe ever since Man of Steel in 2013, and the very first uh, Wonder Woman film in 2017 was indeed one of the best in the franchise, in my opinion. Gal Gadot was so charming as the hero and she gave us a really cool performance as this innocent warrior Diana Prince. And I was very excited to see what Diana was doing after the events of the first movie and before the events of Batman vs Superman and Justice League because this is another prequel to the majority of the DCEU installments. We explore Diana's life in 1984, hence the title of the film, duh, which is around 70 years after the first movie and about 30-something years before the events of Dawn of Justice. I always have an issue with prequels, especially when there's more than one, and especially if those regard the same exact character. And the reason for my pet peeve is continuity. When you have established a franchise, and within it some set of rules and events and reactions from the citizens of the world regarding aliens and monsters and heroes, and then you go back in time to show us something we haven't seen before inside that same franchise where all the given circumstances were already determined in, in another six or seven movies, then you need to be really careful with your story so you don't make big continuity errors. And unfortunately, that's what happened with this one. The big threat that appears at the end of the film was too much of a of an event to not be a topic of conversation in decades to come. I get into it in a bit, but aliens in Man of Steel shouldn't be that much of a stretch when the third act of this movie was as bodacious and as ridiculous as it was. It was really crazy. The DCU um, executives or the, their creative team sometimes state that their projects are separate things, sometimes they're all connected. They, they, they go back and forth quite a few times and I think they need to pick a position fast because I'm a huge supporter of logic and every time a movie goes against logic I get a bit tense and I got tense a couple times during this two and a half hour movie. The length was also frustrating, yes. Not because I dislike 150 minute films, but because Wonder Woman 
84 felt like a slow burn. There's this one hour section where it's just setting up characters and later plot points with little action and few sequences with where the story actually moves forward. Don't get me wrong, I think that spending time with our two antagonists was great. I love when the story doesn't forget about them and their and their motives, and I loathe two-dimensional backstories and villains, so... Okay, after I kind of trash-talked on some bits and pieces about this movie, let's talk antagonists, yeah? Because I, I do have some nice things to say in that area. Our main antagonist is played by Pedro Pascal, who some of you might recognize as the Mandalorian in Star Wars, or perhaps you've seen him on Game of Thrones. Here he plays Maxwell Lord, an enthusiastic businessman with big dreams but little to show. He has been lying to his supporters and investors, and he's somewhat neglecting his younger, his young son, Alistair, in his pursuit of power, status, and control. What was really interesting about Maxwell was how his backstory connected to this overarching objective and how that connected to his redemption moment in the end. In between those, there is an absence of a clear endgame plan, as the audience is left wondering, okay, you have X and you have Y, now what? What more do you want? But, but it's in Maxwell the person, not Maxwell the schemer, that his presence in the movie is actually very enticing. When he was a kid, he was the son of an abusive father, he lived in extreme poverty and was mocked by the other children. Throughout his whole life, he had big ambitions but could never set his plans into motion or become successful. He always seemed to fail, to be the loser that others thought he was. Even as an adult, some people saw him as a loser, called him a loser, but he never lost hope that one day he could prove them all wrong. And I think that this is a very layered motivation, an interesting baseline to explore, but you need to be very careful how you go about it. For the most part, Patty Jenkins, the director, did an incredible job at developing Maxwell Lord's arc, but there were some issues that I just cannot ignore. Like I said, when you reach the end, and he starts this gigantic plan with insanely worldly proportions, some of what made his his character appealing is immediately lost. He sees all the bad things that have resulted from his ambition, and he keeps on going on. In fact, there is no clarification as to what his final destination is. He just seems to be wanting more, and more, and more, and more, and to me, that is really unfavorable and unfortunate, especially when there was no clear path towards this attitude adjustment. The other thing that bothered me a little bit involves the all-powerful artifact of the movie, an object made by a god, something that they call the, the Dreamstone. And my problem with it relates to its existence and creation Diana says it was created by this god a long time ago, imbued with magic that could concede one wish but take away what is most precious for that person. But when this god is mentioned by name, when they discover who it was, 
it doesn't seem to matter all that much. We have this big mystery regarding the stone's maker. It's discovered after one hour, but it doesn't seem to be that relevant anyway. So, weird. But the thing that was really, really inconsistent about the stone, for me at least, was also the thing that was really, really appealing about it. This monkey paw mechanism. You get something in return for something else. And the three big switches that happen in the movie happen with our three main uh, characters, I mean. And I'll, I'm sorry if I skip over some important plot points and scenes um, and also character introductions, but I'll circle back in a bit. Don't worry about that. So, first off, first of all, with Diana, her wish is to have Steve back. What it costs her is her powers. That makes enough sense. I mean, one could argue that her powers are not the thing most precious about her or to her, but actually her kindness, her humanity is. But I guess this trade needed to happen to create some very personal stakes, so I will allow it. With the character of Barbara Minerva, played by Kristen Wiig, her wish is to be like Diana, strong, cool, and attractive. But in the process, she loses her best quality, her humanity. And to me, this was the most logical, clever, and enticing trade that enabled this antagonist to actually have more depth than other characters that we could have almost compared her to. I'm talking about the likes of Syndrome in The Incredibles, the Riddler in Batman Forever, and Electro in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. But in this movie, Wonder Woman doesn't disrespect Barbara at all. She doesn't even ignore her. She's simply in the way. And their goals collide with one another because Barbara, Barbara's objective is to keep her newfound powers and popularity. I thought that this switch was really well written, much better than the switch with our third antagonist, the third main character, I mean, Maxwell Lord, who wishes to become the, the Dreamstone, which in and of itself was a really surprising plot point. When I saw him hold the, the rock, I was sure he was going to choose to be the most powerful man in the world or something like that, but actually he wanted to be the genie. <laughs> and grant people their wishes, while also reaping some benefits in the process. So, what was his most prized quality? As the movie continues, his health deteriorates as he grants wish upon wish upon wish. His head starts bleeding, his energy gets depleted, and he seems to be hurting himself more than he is more than he is helping himself and others. So, is being healthy what's most precious to him? I don't know if that was really in line with his personality, with what we have seen him to be, so I was a bit confused with this particular switch. Another issue I have with this trading mechanism revolves around what is taken. When the stone was a, a stone, and not Max, it didn't really decide what to take from the person. It was simply whatever the most precious thing to them was, well, already was. So, 
How and why can Max now choose what he gets in return? This seems to be against the logic established with said Dreamstone, and sadly this movie is all over the place with its definition of what is logical, so I'll come back to this infuriating aspect of Wonder Woman 1984, but okay, let's dial back then and wrap up characters. Like I mentioned, we have Barbara Minerva uh, as a secondary antagonist, but calling her that is really detrimental to her character because Barbara is just this shy, nerdy, and intelligent geologist, gemologist, lithologist, and cryptozoologist who is very much ignored or harassed by everyone except for Diana, who sees her as another human being. Barbara sees in Diana this goddess and is straight away envious of Diana's beauty and strength. But she doesn't despise her new friend. Diana does nothing wrong to Barbara. In fact, Barbara actually helps Wonder Woman in the second act, just before she realizes that stopping Maxwell Lord would mean losing her newfound popularity and power. That's where her conflict, conflict lies. On top of that, the stone took her humanity away, and so she doesn't rationalize as she did, only seeing Diana as someone who is going to take away everything she has ever wished for her entire life. And I think that Minerva is really one of the best DCU characters we've had so far. Wig gives her gives us a very great, witty, and quirky performance as Cheetah, which is Barbara's villain name. And the only bad thing I can think of regarding Barbara, aka Cheetah, is not even something she had any say in. It was actually something that Patty Jenkins chose to do, which was leave innumerous feline-themed objects throughout the film. Shoes, coats, images, even an embalmed cheetah or a lynx, I don't know. I mean, what a joke. Too many <laughs> references. I, I, got, I got a bit annoyed. I got a bit tense. Uh, but to finish with the characters, we add the return of Steve, Re Steve Trevor, who died in the first movie. The how he comes back relates to the Dreamstone, obviously. The why he comes back relates to Diana's 70-year-old obsession for this guy who she knew for some months. He's also the first man she had ever seen. You know, I'm all for romance, and sometimes I even cry during rom-coms, but 70 years later, still thinking about that same man, not being able to move on, I think that was a bit of a stretch, a bit irrational even, and I can't think of any other reason for this decision besides wanting Chris Pine to reprise his role. However, it was cool that Steve didn't come back in his actual body, it was some other person, but with Steve's mind and soul and memories, we only saw Pine because Diana saw him like that, that was alright. It's even a bit amusing to bring him back to a time period where he doesn't really fit in, making him kind of a fish out of water, when in the first Wonder Woman movie, Diana was the fish out of water and still Steve helped her navigate 
through the strange new world that was London. Okay, you're playing with opposites. That's, that's cool as well. Not too entertaining, but I can definitely appreciate it. But when you bring someone back from the dead, when you don't give them any actual character arc and just the fight with Diana hasn't stopped thinking about him since the Great War, then I have an issue with it. You, you can't even... You can't really process it in a way that makes a lot of sense. Again, I will come back to 70 years just thinking about Steve. Yes, that's cute, that's adorable, that's really sweet, but I don't think that makes a lot of sense. You can even try to compare this to Captain America, Steve Rogers, who lost the chance to be with Peggy Carter when he went under ice, but with him, it was totally different and justifiable because, yes, he thought about Peggy all those years, but in his case, one minute he was talking to the love of his life, another he wakes up 70 years later, and she's nearly 100 years old. And he just spends another 11 years trying to move on. When given the chance to be with her, yes, he takes it, but 11 years is very different than 70 years. Just try and prove me wrong. So yes, I don't think that Diana would have been feeling that way about Steve for decades and decades. I think that was somewhat unconvincing. Yeah, unconvincing is really the word. Also, still regarding Steve Trevor, there was this illogical plot point about him being able to easily pilot an 80s plane, even though the technology had changed dramatically since the 1910s. You don't, you don't have the, the, the luxury for more errors when you've already been playing with magical wishing devices and when you disregard some basic laws of physics in the first action sequence. I'm sorry, but... I'm sorry, but you just don't have that luxury to be literally fighting logic. I know I'm nitpicking, I know, but I can't help myself. When I see an illogical situation going on, I can't ignore it. Sometimes I wish I could. No, I don't. Anyway, moving on. One of the best aspects of the film, something that is really on point and pretty well written, are the stakes. When Diana realizes that in order to stop Maxwell Lord, she would need to destroy the stone and thus revert back on her wish, she faces a huge dilemma. Because, again, all she ever thought about was having Steve back. And if she chooses to renounce her wish, then he would be gone in an instant again, but her powers would come back. She would be strong enough to stop Max's plans. That's what happens. It's really sad and a bit emotional, but that's what she chooses to do. She renounces her wish and she has her powers back and okay I need to do just one more quick side note um, <laughs> I would argue that there is another lack of logic here because if you need to be in contact with the stone to get your wish how come you don't need to touch it 
to renounce said wish. Apparently, you can be anywhere, really, and just whisper it to the air. I don't know how that makes sense. It seems to be once more against that set rules. But I guess that's that's not how, how most of it goes in, in Wonder Woman 84. So, okay, let's go back to the positives. Diana's stakes are really high. She struggled between love and mankind. It, and it's a really common cinematic circumstance, but it always works because it is human. It is relatable. Choosing between this warm, happy feeling and something that at the time is more important or urgent. The urgency here being Maxwell's new plan, which is to use a special broadcasting device with these special particles, go on the television and connect with the entire world so that everyone can make a wish and he could be more and more powerful and famous and whatever. Like I said, his end game goal is not that clear. His health is getting worse, so some of the wishes of the citizens of the world will work as band-aids to his mental and physical state. But besides that, we don't really know why he keeps on doing so. Uh, granting more wishes. I, I don't know. Also, it's, a, it's too big of a stretch to say that this device could make him reach everyone in the world through a screen. Because A, that's a bit dumb. B, Maxwell is only in contact with those special particles after he makes everyone wish something. C, did I say that's a bit dumb? And D, just before he goes live, he asks this random person, don't you wish this would work? To which that person replies, yes. So, was the device already prompted to enable his plan or did he need someone's wish to make it doable? Either way, it doesn't make sense, full stop. It's too far-fetched, too ludicrous, too comic booky for my taste. And have I said, a bit dumb. Just a bit dumb. <sighs> anyway, the world is in chaos. A third, a third world war is on the verge of starting destruction everywhere, just like in every other time period where the, the, the stone played a part. When, when Wonder Woman gets to Maxwell Lord's location, there are several riots on the streets, some of which very close to Lord's uh, building, where his son had been staying, and Barbara is now guarding Maxwell. Now she is an actual apex predator, a cheetah, because Max used some of his monkey paw fortune to give her more power. We have a rather cool fighting sequence between Diana and Barbara. Diana tries to reason with her new friend, but the stone changed her so much that Diana has no other way but to incapacitate Cheetah so she could stop the human genie for good. As she is mere feet away from Max, his power has grown exponentially, and now there's this sort of invisible barrier between the two that doesn't allow allow Diana to actually knock out Lord to actually get 
close enough to him to stop him. <laughs> so what does she do? She uses her lasso of truth on his foot. And by the magic of the broadcasting platform, she shows the truth to everyone in the world, including Maxwell, who sees his son in danger and asks everyone to renounce their wish. Then we have a montage of people doing just that, with Maxwell Lord being the most important one, of course, and all the imminent threats, all the chaos suddenly stops. Okay, I'm not even gonna, gonna talk about the lasso's abilities um, in this moment, or its power of, to show truth, or its power to grab lightning strikes, but am I to believe that everyone around the entire world renounced their wish? Really? Everyone? Um, also, I'm trying to figure out if it's a case of having Max renounce his wish leads to everyone who wished for something after he became the stone having their wishes automatically renounced, or if Diana actually needed everyone to renounce, because when we see Barbara again, she doesn't say a word, but she is back in her human form. Are we led to believe that she renounced her wish completely just before we, we saw her, or that my first theory that Max's renouncement led to everyone's renouncement, thus Barbara's cheetah mode two, I think all of this, this very last moment, um, was pretty confusing. And going back to my very first pet peeve with the film, a bit too ambitious. Too huge of a world event to go unnoticed and unmentioned in the other DCU movies. I think the leeway that each director has to play within their story is fine, really. I love director independence, but then don't say that this movie is part of the franchise when it clearly does something that contradicts previous installments. J Jesus, honestly. The cool and cute thing about this ending, though, was Maxwell's redemption. He renounced his wish and he goes on a search for his son, Alistair, amidst the chaos, and when he finds him, he apologizes for being a loser, for lying, for not caring enough, for not being the dad he should be, and he hopes that one day he becomes worthy of being loved by Alistair, to which the kid replies with, I already love you, you're my dad, which just melts your heart, it's just so emotional. This, yes, this was a very, very enticing and charming story beat giving Maxwell Lord an actual character arc in his first and probably only movie appearance in the franchise. But wait, hmm, where is the stone now? And is Max going to prison? I, I don't know, we, we, we find no answers for both questions. We don't see the stone fall out of Max. We don't see any police coming to him. That's the, that's the last scene we we ever see him in. Instead, we just skip to Christmas and Diana as a little chat with the man that was Steve for those two days, hinting at her decision to finally move on, which is another positive, yes, in my opinion. Um, as for the post-credit scene, 
we have original Wonder Woman actor Linda Carter making a cameo as Asteria, a mythical Amazonian great warrior who had left Themyscira a long time ago and forsaken her golden armor, which is used by Diana in the third act. Cool little cameo, non-consequential, but a fun homage to the OG iconic character portrayal from Carter. Um, but if I could <laughs> link Wonder Woman 1984 to one word and one word only, it would be ambition. The character's ambitions, dreams and wishes, but especially Patty Jenkins and DC's ambition for this movie, which in my opinion just fell short and landed in the sequel curse territory, with the first one being much better than this. Still, this, this one felt, felt vibrant, much more vibrant, with the 80s themes being pushed to the limit, some campy and corny action scenes, which I don't fully enjoy but can appreciate for their tribute to that colorful pulsating era. And we add a cool little payoff to Wonder Woman's invisible jet from the comics as Diana makes her plane invisible so she and Steve could fly under the radar. Uh, speaking of flying, she also learns how to fly, really fly, which I don't think was a great choice because for once it's giving this strong character another strength unnecessarily. And for another thing, I, again, it breaks continuity because in Batman versus Superman and Justice League, I don't think that Diana flies once. So yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm afraid I can only give this one a seven. And despite mentioning mostly the bad about the film, I did enjoy the overall experience and our two antagonists' motives and character arcs were really good. But when you screw up the logic you've established, I cannot avoid talking about it. Nevertheless, this is not one of the worst movies of the DCU. No, sir, not by a long shot. But I'm afraid it's also not one of the best. It should be right there in the middle. Pretty soon I'll upload a ranking episode and you'll know where each DCE Extended Universe movie lands on that list. But for now, this was Wonder Woman 1984. And that's it guys, Wonder Woman 1984 reviewed. I hope you didn't find my opinion too harsh, just brutally honest. <laughs> but I'd love to hear what you thought about this movie. Is it better than the first movie or does it have a hard time living up to it? Right now I have my email attached to the description of the podcast so you can message me through there. But pretty soon I'll open up some social media accounts to be able to connect with more people and make it easier to start respectful, fun conversations on our favorite movies, TV shows and games. So this has been just one more opinion. I've been Charlie and you have been wonderful. I'll talk to you soon. Goodbye.